0: The uh, like the the idea of the working bulldog. So, anyway, just uh, uh, introduce yourself and how you got your start in the in the dog life and uh, what what uh, brought you to uh, the style of dog you have now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, my name is Moritz Moritz von Settelmann, as you would correctly pronounce it in German. And uh, well, you can just call me whatever you like. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, I live in Germany. And my breed is a working type of Renaissance Bulldog, and uh, I got well. I got started pretty much the day I was born because I grew up in a in a Bulldog family. Really, my my parents had Bulldogs. I guess since the early '70s or mid mm-hmm. late late '60s, and they started out with uh, with the regular English Bulldog at that time. And we kept a bunch of dogs over, over the years. We had bull mastiffs, English bulldogs, mixed breed, pit bull mixed with a boxer. Um, so, yeah, I, ever since I, I was born, I was pretty much surrounded by dogs. And, and I never lived without a dog, really. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's basically how, how it all started. Mm-hmm. I just wanted a dog that was a healthy version of what I was used to as a, as a child, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Because um, the English Bulldogs that we had, they had pretty much a lifespan of maybe six or eight years. And by the time they were eight, they were really dragging their hind legs behind them. It was it was just a terrible sight for me as a child. So I, I really wanted to do something about that, pretty much. And if I wanted a dog myself, then I would want a Bulldog just because I love the... The, um, the personality, the type, um, but I didn't want to have to deal with all of these veterinary costs and mm-hmm. all that in the, in the end of their lives. You know? So that's how I started. I started researching the old English bulldog pretty much. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time when my parents had bulldogs, there was this really big breeder from Switzerland, her name was Imelda Angern, who in return created the uh, the Continental Bulldog years later. Um, that was one of the breeders that my parents worked with, and I guess my dad told me about the Old English Bulldog that she had created, or that she was trying to create, and this is
0: how the, how the search started, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you consider the style of bulldog that you work with?
1: Um,
0: well. We're
1: trying to to keep a working ability in the bulldogs and a a health that is just that should be normal to every dog. So we do a lot of testing with the with the breed in general, uh, whether it be um, mental testing, right, and or um, physical tests, really. So the style of bulldog that I have is not like the English bulldog at all. I would say I think. Most of the time, it has more in common with an American Bulldog, or even even a, maybe an American Staffordshire type of dog. Really, the the nose, the muzzle might be a little bit shorter, and we might have more wrinkles than than a pit bull, for instance, would have. But other than that, they're they're more leggy in their appearance. They all have long tails. They have open nostrils. They can breathe. And yeah, it is it is more a type. Of original bulldog many times people will say that we are that they're creating a a um, original bulldog from the working time like from the from the bull baiting time and stuff like that but and um, if you research history you realize very quickly that the bulldog from that time had pretty much nothing to do with the with the old English Bulldogs or the English Bulldogs that we see right now they weren't very wrinkly they weren't heavy they they uh, looked a lot more like a pit bull or like a terrier than than what we would think. So, and it is it's a very simple reason for that. It's simply because you do if you do work your dogs, you realize that a dog with a short muzzle can't bite. It's it's a myth. Like an undershot jaw, it's not better for biting. Not at all. You you will realize that very very quickly. So we took away all these things, or we tried to still take them away, like the like the undershot jaw. Um, or or the the very wide chest
0: simply because they're not not any good for work. Mm-hmm. Just a... you uh, you don't have to discuss this because I know some people don't like to. What are some of the breeds that you have introduced into yours to to kind of create what you've got now? Well, it's like it's not only my own
1: work. I really have to put emphasis on that because I... mm-hmm. we're working kind of as a loose team. Um, the, the foundation stock that we used came from uh, the Renaissance Bulldogs, which were created in the U.S. And um, we have used we're planning on using a couple of outcrosses, and there have been outcrosses before. Um, but I know for a fact that uh, in, inside of that bloodline, we have Hermes Bulldogs, we have American Bulldogs, I think a whole lot of American Bulldogs. I don't know for sure because the the information about that time when that breed was created is very, very limited or at least, let's say, restricted because the guy that did it isn't very open about talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we have American Bulldogs. Apparently, we have a Bull Mastiff in there. And I know Bull Mastiffs. I don't really see a whole lot of Bull Mastiff in there. But this is what, what the official website of his says. Right. Um apparently we have bandogs, which are crosses in this case between pit bulls and um and uh, an English mastiff. Mm-hmm. So this is just what what is on that webpage. And I know for a fact that there have been other pit bulls introduced. There was at least one sorreline pit bull. And um yeah, along those lines of the of the Hermes Bulldog. Greg Hermes at the time was creating his his breed as well, so he had a bunch of other dogs. I would say that he that he mixed together in order to create his line, um, which obviously consists out of English bulldog, pitbull, and American bulldog again. Mm-hmm. So, I think the amount of English bulldog actually inside of the breed is very low, probably between 10 to 20 percent, if mm-hmm. and the rest yeah. Would, yeah the American bulldogs and uh, and terrier types,
0: right? right? And uh, what are some of the what are the uh, the the outcrossings that y- you guys are thinking about uh, introducing? Well, we have a a guy, a friend of ours, who has just recently
1: crossed a Renaissance bulldog from uh, from Working Bull's kennel Denmark to a um, to a pit bull from a Spanish line that has a has a small amount of Presa Canario in it and um, that is an interesting cross by itself they just wanted to mix that and i guess right now we're waiting for the puppies to show up and to kind of take a look at them and maybe one of these dogs is going to be is going to be used for for breeding and there's been another breeding this year um it was an old english bulldog with a small percentage of renaissance bulldog blood and um yeah that is pretty much an outcross too i would say it was crossed to another Uh, to another renaissance bulldog from working bulls kennel denmark and yeah one of the breeders um from from slovenia kept one of these dogs and as like from what i'm hearing it develops very very well it looks like it's going to be an amazing dog actually
0: yeah that's really cool i i i'm i'm find myself more fascinated by um kind of more of your rare breeds but also people that are um Trying to resurrect a a, a dog that that um, resembles more of what the old old rustic style dogs were like, it, yeah. and not ne- not necessarily uh, uh, puberty dogs because you know, like like the English bulldog, their gene pool is so limited, right? Totally, and it's overproduced and it's become you know kind of an unhealthy dog, and and you can see that in French bulldogs today. It's starting to go south and same with pugs you know these are the dogs that i love and i grew up with so yeah, yeah I, it, it's very it's very simple really if you know your your stuff about genetics and
1: biology as soon as you you limit a gene pool to just itself like to kind of make like an insular population as you, if you will um you'll get problems eventually um and that's what kind of breed standards are for you know what you're aiming for what you're ideal dog would be and why wouldn't you use a different breed or something really healthy from somewhere why, why the hell wouldn't you use a street dog if it fit your standard really yeah. it, it doesn't matter it'll it'll be all for the better i i've been um working with some of these breeds that have a really close gene pool like german shepherds or or boxers and it's it's terrible i was i was decoying at the at a boxer club in, in germany and among all these boxers there was really one good boxer that I really liked, and they said they couldn't breed it. And I said, why Why wouldn't you? It, it's a perfectly good dog. And they said, well, the nails of this dog, they're white. doesn't fit our standard. Oh, my God. Said, God, you have, like, this is the only good dog among, like, 30. Please, breed him. Just Why wouldn't you? But they, they mm. restrict themselves so much that they're eventually, the, the breed is going to die if they don't do something about it. It's just oh. the way it is. Right. Yeah, that's sad. Okay, so um back when the Renaissance Bulldog was created, there was the or there still is the Renaissance Bulldog Kennel Club, which I guess I have to mention because they are the the club that basically um owns the right to the name even of Renaissance Bulldog. And um they're they're a group of people that that preserve this kind of breed. And among those people There's a guy, a terrific guy, by the name of Goraz, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, I just call him Goraz, and uh, he's from Slovenia, and he kind of had the same vision as I would have, and he found that these dogs were incredible workers, and um, he bought a couple of dogs, and among those dogs, there was pretty much the the grandmother of all of the working bulldogs that we have right now, which was uh, Ironhead, Iron Bulls Cuba. It was an amazing dog, and he was a working dog person, and he again um, kind of infected another guy who was a working dog guy from Denmark by the name of Martin Thompson, and he bought a son of hers and a daughter, which were, I mean, they're, they were amazing working dogs. and. Uh, I guess this is how the entire idea started of kind of putting everything to the side that was the general idea about how to create a breed or how to follow a standard, but just to to select for working ability. Um, so these guys then again started working with a German club called the AVD, which is a club for Presa Canarios, um, who have a very, very strict standard for, for selecting their breeding stock. And they have a system in place to test their dogs, which is probably the best I've ever seen. And they started to work their dogs with these guys and to test them. Um, And, well, as luck would have it, these dogs passed the guidelines, really. And um, that's how how they kind of started. And I, myself, bought a dog from a different breeder that was a really good worker. And I was a... Uh, I was a working dog person myself. I had the hopes that she would be, that she would be a good dog and suited for that. Started working her, figured out about that ABD club, figured, found these guys, and we kind of connected, and that's how it all started, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's awesome.
0: So, talk about some of the jobs that that um, these dogs are doing now, and what some some of the jobs that you are hoping that they can uh, get involved in in the future well um obviously the job that i think or my
1: my colleagues would think would be the most important is personal protection this is where this breed really really excels at this is where the where you can really test the dogs very very well i mean it's a bit like like weight pull for example when when a dog pulls a certain amount of weight then you know it's very good in that specific area and you can do the same thing with personal protection dogs you can test them mentally in, in various ways and have like a team of other people judging like a neutral bunch of people that would that would compare your dogs to to the other dogs and give you a very, a very exact idea about what your dog is capable of doing and what not and this is basically what we're trying to accomplish to make a dog that's that excels at personal protection and they already do in a way they're already up there like if, if we go into a competition for personal protection dogs um, we're like we've never been the last and and we've like a couple of times a couple of times we've been the first um, in the competition that means we've competed with, the other really good protection sport breeds, like crested or the Belgian Malinois, which is amazing. Like I didn't think it was possible that these dogs could be that good, but but they were. There were a couple of dogs that were just right up there with them. So this is the direction in which we're going, and obviously, you can do a whole bunch of other things. Like I work a lot of uh, obedience with my dogs. This is like what I do on a daily basis. I get them out do my obedience routines teach them new tricks um, they they're supposed to be really intelligent which is kind of odd to say about a bulldog but yeah some of them are very intelligent others not so much but it's not that we put the emphasis on this so they, they do very well in obedience for me at least um, Martin Thompson from from Denmark he does a lot of weight pull with his dogs as well as agility um, and yeah i guess that's pretty much the extent of it that what we're working on right now oh actually nose work we're still we're doing a couple of uh, cool nose work things with them so uh detection work now, i used to do a lot of tracking with one of my dogs as well and they they don't have the best nose obviously because they're bulldogs but they have the necessary drive for it which is very interesting they mm-hmm. they'll never be like a hunting dog but they'll have as much fun as one at least mm-hmm. so, they, they love doing that, and that's what we work on. But it's not what we select for. We mm-hmm. select for, for stamina, for courage, for the correct bite, the correct movements, and the speed, and the tenacity, pretty much. <laughs> the original Renaissance Bulldog standard is a very loose standard, and I think we're still pretty much within that standard. Um, I guess anything, I'm, I'm going to use like, the metric, metric system right now, And uh, because I'm not so good with with pounds and inches and all that, but um, we're we're expecting a a bulldog from our line to be somewhere between let's say 24 kilos and 35ish. Most of them are a bit bigger. We have a bunch of dogs that are um, at the 30 that that might be 37, 38 kilos, and very few that are a bit lighter in the weight, and I think roughly 45 centimeters in height at the shoulder would be would be an ideal really but some of them are higher I mean we have like um, one of the biggest dogs around right now is uh, working bulls kennel Denmark's boomer that's his name and he's like 48 centimeters at the shoulder which is quite a big dog he's, he's really big
0: mm-hmm.
1: So <laughs> it's, it's a working breed and but working breeds are never very uniform in, in that. They're they're always all over the place. If you look at, like, let's say the Malinois, you have huge dogs and very tiny dogs, you know, uh, with long coats, short coats, in different colors, and we don't really care that much about it, at least I don't really care much about it, as long as it's still a bulldog, as long as you can look from the distance and say, hey, there, there's a bulldog, you know, then I'm fine with it, really. Mm-hmm. But others don't think so. Obviously. Yeah. But we have a standard and we have a type test as well that is held very loosely. And within that type test, I guess the most important things would be the, the positioning of the teeth, whether the teeth are all there, whether the feet are straight, the legs are straight, um, and all these things that you kind of need for, for working ability. That's more important than, than let's say, how
0: many wrinkles your dog has. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there any registries that you guys use to to register your dogs? Yeah, well, um, there obviously is the Renaissance
1: Bulldog Kennel Club that registers the dogs. Um, Goraz from Slovenia still registers his dogs with with that club, and he's very active in, within that club. Um, I used to be uh, with a with a European registry, but um, yeah, we had we had our little differences, and I am registering with the U now that's the abbreviation for their uh, for that registry. It's a, it's a really nice guy from Ireland that does it. And um, I guess with the next generation we at least I and uh, my friend from Denmark will be solely registering our dogs with the AVD. We have give, have been given the opportunity to register our dogs there if they pass all the, all the requirements that the Presa Canarios in their club would have to meet. And, yeah, so far it looks like we we, we match those requirements and we can uh, start registering our dogs there.
0: Oh, that's great. Mm. Um, I know some people uh, frown upon this, especially working dog people, but it's a question that I ask everybody because uh, uh, I know, unfortunately, this is kind of how you promote the breed and you show it off to people that are not necessarily um, – Strictly interested in, in the working style, but do you guys do any uh, confirmation shows or anything um, like that to promote the breed? I've been to one confirmation
1: show in my life and my dog won a prize. I have no idea what I did right. <laughs> I just went into the ring, did the thing, the judge gave me a, a cup in the end and I was happy. So I have really, it wasn't my kind of people there, so I don't do that anymore. Um, I guess this is a hobby for for a different type of guy, um, but I'm I'm fine with that. Really, if you if you want to go to a beauty contest, then then do it. I mean, what whatever makes you happy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we have that that confirmation type test um, that is that is being held at the at the competitions that we go to. We have a judge, my friend from Denmark, Martin Thompson. Um, that, that is a pretty much on every event and you can do a type test with him. So he will go through the standard, look, look at the dog and in the end give you a certificate that will tell you exactly what, how your dog compares to the standard. And um, so you get, like, you get a result. It, I guess one would be the best kind of result. And uh, I don't know when you fail, when your dog it doesn't match the standard anymore. But you get a very accurate description of of what your dog is like physically. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. If your if our dog's pass, then we never go back and never think about it again. But it's just something that we have to keep in check. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have like a line where where there's English bulldog type of dogs and pit bulls, and everything's just accepted under one on one uh, catch all term of working. Mm-hmm. We still want to have like a type that maybe in like I don't know ten generations
0: is a bit more uniform than it is. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of those um, tests? What exactly do are they testing, and the you know the the kind of work that you're doing to uh, become certified on that? Yeah, totally. So we have the type test that we already talked about.
1: Mm-hmm. Your dog has to pass that. Then there is a health test, um, which involves um, hip dysplasia. Uh, elbow dysplasia, spondylosis, um, Your the heart of the dog is going to be tested, and a bunch of other things. And pretty much the results have to be almost flawless with the dog. It is very very difficult to pass it. Um, you might be familiar with the, the the way that hip dysplasia is rated. It's like from one to, from A to I guess an E, or mm-hmm. something. Like that. So you have A B C D E E meaning really severe hip dysplasia. The dog can't really walk anymore. And A is a dog that will never have a problem in his life. So within that within that club, we only breed A and B hips. If your dog has a C hip, it must be amazing at everything else and be the perfect dog in order to be able to be bred. But um, yeah, the, the health restrictions are very, very strict. Mm-hmm. That's the health part of the, of the of the evaluation process and then we have um, the general mental test which is probably the one that we spend the most time on because it, first of all it's fun to do and most of us don't do it once we do it like five or six times because on every event there's still this test and it's like it's like a hobby kind of thing almost so it is it has an environmental part where your dog has been exposed to to different environmental stimuli like umbrellas, I think I've even sent you a video of one of these of one of these tests. It's like umbrellas, and you never really know what happens. There's definitely a couple of gunshots involved. You'll see how the dog reacts to that. Um, strangers, um, and always there's always a part that you can't really train for. I remember I did the uh, the the breed test in summer, and there was like a I think a push cart or something like that, where your dog had to hop on, you had to push your dog across the field and see how it does. Sometimes there's people laying on the floor, your dog has to jump over them, or maybe some smoke or coming out of the machine and your dog has to run through it. Um, a big liner that they pull up and, and pull over the dog's head and stuff like that, just to see whether the dog is scared to these stimuli or maybe possibly even super aggressive towards them, which is... This is one part of that of that evaluation process. The second part of that is a, a protection part that consists out of a surprise attack. Basically, you walk your dog around the field, and all of a sudden, a decoy jumps out of the blind and attacks your dog and yourself full force. Um, and you see what your dog does. If it likes, if it defends you, then you know what kind of dog you have. If it doesn't, then well, you also know what kind of dog you have. <laughs> and, and then there is a long sentence it's called a face attack where you send your dog across the field and the dog will see the decoy from the very beginning and the decoy will make an attack on the dog from the distance that means your dog already knows there is somebody it's not a surprise to him but that person charges at the dog and you'll see what your dog does in that in that uh, scenario and there's two or there's three types of tests within this um within this breed evaluation tests there's ZWP 1 2 and 3 1 is basically the, the easiest you do the attacks with a sleeve the pressure or the scariness of the decoy isn't as bad as in 2 or 3 3 being insanely crazy um I think there's like just a handful of dogs that ever have taken the test and actually passed it. It's only Presa Canarios. I think there's only one dog alive that actually has that title. It is is a very, very difficult test to pass for a dog, and most of the people actually will tell you that they don't want a dog that is able to pass those tests. So it is a very tough test for, and if you're the right guy, then, yeah, go for it. And if you have the right dog for it, obviously. But most of us do the ZWP one, which is uh, with a sleeve, and ZW two, uh ZWP two, uh, which is with a with a full body suit. Mm-hmm.
0: This
1: is oh, and then there's an endurance test actually. That that's the fourth test actually. It's uh, for the bulldog. It's 15 kilometers in uh, one hour. Um, to the goal. That's pretty mm-hmm. much it. You've got to get there. After 20 minutes, the heart rate is being taken of the dog, and you see whether your dog is in still good shape and has recovered from that from that long run, or not. And um, in case it hasn't, then you I guess you got to go to the vet and check if the dog's heart out or something like that. But generally, a dog would would be able to to do that. The of canaries are running uh, 25 kilometers uh, in a little bit more time. But we decided, since the legs of a bulldog are a bit shorter, that we'll go for 15 kilometers. So, yeah, four four different tests for the same breed. And if you pass all four of them, you get approved to be bred. Awesome. Yeah, it's the, and it's a lot of work. And I think this is kind of necessary to, to develop a working breed. And not many people like to put in the work. It's one thing to, I mean, I know that it's really hard work to drive to all these the dog shows and to show your dog. I mean, some of these guys are busy all year driving all through the country showing their dogs, but working your dogs in the field, preparing them for these tests, running and and to pay for all the health evaluations, it is it is a lot of work too, and not many people are willing to do it, which is probably why
0: there are many working Bulldogs out there, at least not of that. Well, right. <clears throat> how do they do in the water? Have you tested them in
1: yeah um, well, generally they do really good. I mean there's there's the majority of dogs are crazy about water pretty much. We're having I, I had one litter this year that really wasn't all too fond about it. I, I don't know what really happened there and I tried to prepare them from from a very early age like really like four weeks old puppies that had like dipped into the water very carefully and waited until they started paddling. And really what happened, the dogs didn't paddle, they just—they were just kind of hanging in there and if I had let go of them, they would have probably drowned. They just got used to the sensation of water on their feet and they never really got secured by water. But I have one of these dogs still here and he runs through the water and he has no problem with it, but he doesn't really like it that much, but it's, it's so far it's just one litter. Um, I know a story from another from another dog that is just so crazy about water. The guy that, that owns her, um, he does these runs through like obstacles and all that. I guess it's like a marathon where you take your dog along, and he can't run by water with his dog because she is so crazy about him that she will forget the running, she will forget the contest, everything. He just has to really pull her away from the water to keep running. So yeah. And generally, In general, they should like it. With this litter, with this specific one, I'm
0: not so sure if they're ever going to. If they're ever going to do, yeah. Well, dogs handle the, the hot and the cold? I think they handle the hot a bit better than the cold,
1: actually. Maybe, at least the dogs that, that I've known. They don't really mind the cold, but I wouldn't keep them outside in a kennel if it's like Below freezing temperatures. If you do keep them outside of outside in a kennel that you can hopefully do, um, you will have to have a heated box or something along those lines. They they're not like a Caucasian Shepherd or a Husky that can just live in the cold. They have a very short fur and their belly is pretty much pretty much naked. They don't have any fur there at all, mm. so not much protection there. Um, in the heat, well, the biggest problem I've encountered with it is that I can't tell if the heat is bothering them at all. Like my, my female that I have here, I I think I even sent you a video of her, her working in protection sport. It was an insanely hot day that day. It was 36 degrees Celsius, which probably compares to about a hundred degree Fahrenheit. It was super hot outside and she didn't seem to mind. Know, she she just did the same things as she usually would she might have not jumped as high as she usually would but other than that she was exactly the same she would chase a ball until she probably dies actually I cannot tell when to stop with her this is the biggest problem I think if your if your dog has a like a, like a heat stroke or something like that then um, you will get very very few um, very few things that you could possibly tell it. Beforehand, mm-hmm. you know, so they I guess they handle it very well I've never pushed them like there will always be a point when it in the extreme heat where I'm like, okay you got to go inside now I'm gonna throw you into a lake or something because this can't be healthy right now what you're doing, but so far they all survived um, I Guess they're doing really well with it mm-hmm. and like sometimes she would like she would do things that really drive me crazy because she just had like this huge long sand attack and the husband worked really hard on the sleeve. I would call her off back to me. She would like go to a heel, look at me, and she wouldn't even pant. And yeah. it's like, dude, you gotta, you gotta let your tongue hang out of your mouth, otherwise you'll die. And she's like, no, I want to go again. You know. So this is this is actually kind of a bad thing. I, I wish that specific dog would show me a little more of of how how her heat tolerance is because she just doesn't want. Wow. I know exactly what you're talking about, and if, you can, if you're not really cautious about that, the same can actually happen in old English bulldogs because this—they still have a lot of English bulldog blood, and it's not only their their body shape that that really depends on it. You know, it's like sometimes you see these pinched nostrils, and you don't think much about it, but it's really—it's terrible to dog for your dog to virtually breathe through a straw. You know what I mean? And um, I had like I like three or four days ago I had to put my oldest dog down. And she was she was an old English bulldog that looked physically great, but by the time she was four, she had a surgery on all four legs and mm-hmm. uh, I guess I put in as much money into her as I would have into a new into an old used car, I guess. I guess around eight to nine thousand. Euros went into that dog, and physically, she looked great. You no, know? but internally, that dog was was just a wreck. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to test your dogs, and you want to test the parents of the dog, and you want to know exactly what these dogs can do, what their test and health results are. You know, if you just rely on the word of the breeder, which I did at the time where where I bought her from, um, it can end up very badly. Even though your
0: dog looks as though it's healthy. Mm-hmm. yeah it's that's, that's very important uh, and you know we you can't control environmental issues like just like us right. we could live a, a super healthy life and then you know get sick and get yeah. cancers so yeah it's just not it's not um you know, 100% guarantee, but like you say, you're giving this dog every opportunity to live a, a healthy life. And that's so important in yeah. dog breeding and in the dog world. I Cause you just don't want a dog that's going to suffer the last no. three or four years of their life. And, you know, like the English bulldogs do. So, yeah, yeah.
1: it's just yeah, it's terrible. I mean,
0: and it's, it's
1: actually what we're finding out. It isn't very hard to keep the health in check. Really. I mean, if you think about it, the health, the proper health test, would be along the lines of maybe four hundred dollars to get the dog checks, checked out entirely. What's really hard is to say no. A breeder has to have a dog that looks perfect, that works perfectly. He does those tests; they're not what he wants or what he has expected, and then he has to make a choice and say no. I'm not going to breed that dog. And this is the real, this is the truly hard part about it. So most of the breeders rather don't do the health tests than to get a bad result back, you know. So this is, this is I think this is the biggest part about breeding in bulldogs. You have, like, if you, if you see a breeder that has 15 dogs, and of these 15 dogs, he bred all of them, something must be wrong. Like, if he has 15 dogs, he should have, let's say, 30 dogs, and half of them he has thrown out of the program. You know, he would never breed. So, yeah, saying no probably is the, is the most important part about that. The working dog community, they just, I mean, all of the working dog people, they have their club that they go to. They have dog people that they meet. They know that they rely on others for their dog, for their own dog to be better and for the breed to be better. It is a, It really is a community thing. To, to breed and raise uh, working dogs, I think. And in the show ring, it's a different story because it's just you and your dog against all of the others. While in a dog club, it's really... it go, I mean, you got to mow the lawn on the dog field, right? Somebody's got to do it. And if, you're, if you happen to have the right lawnmower, you, you just go there and do it for them and stuff like that. It's a team effort, like the entire thing is. So I guess that's why working dog people are in general very
0: very friendly and very teamwork. Mm-hmm. absolutely <clears throat> uh, here's a question I, I ask everybody um, not necessarily specific to any breeder or breed or working club um, what are some of the breeds that you that you really like and, and kind of follow and and uh... obviously obviously the Presa canario I mean
1: mm-hmm. I'm training in the Presa Canario club. Um, with, I guess, the largest in, in, in Germany or maybe even the world, the largest Presley Canary working um, were a dog club, and I, I follow the, the litters that they have. I see the dogs. Uh, every time I go to training, I see at least 10 of these dogs, and I know their the lineages. Uh, I really, really love them. I mean, I, I love big dogs in general. They have their downsides. That's why I don't have one, or don't have one anymore. I used to have big dogs, too. But I really really love Presa Canarios and I love Belgian Shepherds simply because I see them, I compete with them, um, I decoy them very regularly. They're, they're probably the, the working dog breed at the moment that is just everywhere you know. Since the last 15 years there is not a single dog club that doesn't have a Belgian sh- Shepherd somewhere and they're always good, they're always amazing, they're doing incredible work with them. Um, So yeah, I love I love working with them actually, and I love seeing them. I'm a follow and I follow them a little bit too. I know like you you maybe watch yourself do it like you think you sit you sit somewhere and you think like hey if I wanted to buy a press a canary which one would I get and you start googling and you start looking at the litters you look at videos and this is what I do very very frequently with Belgian uh, with Belgian Malamas I or or Dutch herders you know. I just I see a dog, and I'm thinking, like, hey, who bred that thing? That's amazing. I want to know who the parents are, and what is that dog working as? Is it a police dog, or whatever? I try to find out things. So these are basically the two breeds that I like the most, but but obviously there's a bunch of other breeds that I love. Whenever there's a good dog on the field, I want to know more about it, you know? And it's really – I there's, like, the saying, I guess it's the German saying, like, it, it goes um, – beautiful dog is not always a good dog but a good dog is always beautiful you know so it's like if there is like a giant schnauzer or whatever on the field and it's really cool i mean i hate dogs with long hair
0: but hell i'm gonna google that dog and i'm gonna find out more about it you know this is what i like to hear when i listen to a podcast about dogs and people that have multiple dogs uh, so what is your your uh, Setup or where do you house your dogs, and and what's the reasoning behind your setup? Yeah, well,
1: um, I have a room inside of the house that's just for the dogs. That's where their crates are, and I have another room in the shed outside. That's where, um, for instance, dogs would go that uh, can't really have a a female in heat around, or well, I like to sleep too, you know. So that dog's gonna go to the shed. And they have a room that the setup is pretty much exactly the same as inside. So they then they know the the room, they're used to that, and um, yeah, they can just stay there for the night. It's heated and it's basically the same setup as as the setup I have inside. But just the bare room with a bunch of of crates, flat crates, really.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, then I have them like on kind of a rotation system. Like I don't like too many, especially because my dogs are quite active. Um, I don't like to have more than one dog outside and have the run of the house. As soon as there are two dogs, they'll get into trouble. Um, one way or another, they, they'll start playing, they start finding something to, to pick a fight over or at least to 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 carry around and show the other dog. It, it's it's always a mess. So, I always have that kind of rotation system where I take one dog out of the room and have the run around in the house. Uh, last maybe for two or three hours depending on what we do then they'll take up the next dog and have him in the, in the house and uh, yeah that's that's pretty much how it goes but for um, how the house is set up um, the, the, the puppies are also in the shed most of the time um, simply because it's it's a mess to have so many dogs and puppies in one room I just don't like to do that and some females Aren't really fond of that either to have other dogs around, so they're going into the shed, and um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm, I don't have any outside kennels. Um, my dog, like even the crates inside of the dog room, they're always open. I don't, I don't really put them in the crate and close it down. they mm-hmm. they can run around, they can visit other dogs, they can even they don't really play much. I, I, I kind of trained them to be quite calm inside of there inside of their room. But they they can do whatever they want inside of that room. So yeah, we have a we have a working pack, and I, like in the mornings or in the evenings, I let them all out together, and um, they they go about their business outside t- together. It's not like we have to
0: always only have one dog outside for training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's another question that's uh, fascinating me because you know just because I'm learning and and want to know, and there's different schools of thought, and I'm just. Um, and I think it's interesting to hear people's uh, opinion on this. What kind of diet do you feed your dogs and the reasoning behind that and how many times a day, etc.?
1: Yeah. Um, right now I have a, I'm using kibble. I have a, a really great brand of kibble that is very local. And I used to feed raw. Um, the barf diet, as you would call it, I guess. Um, but I, I loved it. I would recommend this to everybody. If you really know what you're doing, if you know how to put all the nutrients together and you really know what's best for your dog, then it is the perfect, perfect diet. Feed raw if you really can. And if you know what you're doing, that's one of the very important things about it. If you don't, then you can malnutrition your dog within weeks, really. Um, and if you don't have something like work, to keep your dog in check, if you realize your dog isn't as fast anymore, what, what's going on there, you might want to change the diet, right? But if you don't do stuff like that, then it's really hard to, to see all of the aspects that, that can relate to feeding, you know? Um, so I, I did that for years, and I loved it, and especially because I could go for and and, and customize a diet for every dog individually. And if the dog needs more fat, I would give it more protein or whatever it needed. However, If you travel a lot, like I do, it is not nice to travel with a suitcase full of raw meat. It sucks, especially in the summer. And uh, if you have, if you're carrying like intestines or something like that, it's really not cool. So I switched to kibble and I I started trying it again. And I found this brand that really works well for all of the dogs. So I kept it so far. And I think of switching back to, to raw every now and again. I might eventually do it simply because I liked it so much, and it was actually cheaper than the kibble that I'm using right now.
0: But for convenience, not so much right now. I wouldn't see myself doing the raw diet. Um, maybe just a little bit, introducing some things, maybe mixing yeah. it. But but
1: who yeah, knows? It never really like if you start mixing it, it never really gets you the desire. Never, never really. Okay. Uh, yeah. But like if you, for instance say, hey, you have six months of the year where it's cold outside and you could you could do that, I really strongly recommend to anybody to just give it a try for a couple of months because the understanding you get about dog nutrition is is that you, you step up your game after that because you see changes instantly. Like within two weeks, once you add more fat or more protein or some of that vegetable, the dog will respond to it very, very quickly. And if you keep keep feeding the same kibble year in and year out, dog's not going to change. You won't see those changes. Um, you'd have to to try out 20 different styles of, of dog food brands to eat, even get close to what you can experience with a with a raw food diet. Mm. So if you if you have the time and you decide to just give it a shot for a couple of months, then you're going to learn something about you or your and your dog totally. totally.
0: Okay.
1: I can only recommend it as an experience.
0: <clears throat> is there any supplements on the market that that you, you've used or thought about using? <laughs> yeah, um,
1: I just I just talked to a friend of mine about that. Um, we live right next to a to a breeder of racehorses, and she's told me that rice bran oil is doping for horses. Like if she goes to a race they would test whether the horse has rice bran oil in its bloodstream. I had no idea. Apparently, yeah. it raises the testosterone levels or something. It is like like doping. And uh, I talked to a friend of mine about that, and he was like, yeah, I, I do that from time to time. I give my dog rice bran oil, and it works, you know. So I, I, I'm thinking of trying it out. I don't know if it's any good for the dog. Hell, if it works, I'm going to take it myself, right? But... <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm thinking about doing that. Other than that, I use different kinds of oils, uh, like flaxseed oils, and um, like if you if you have a dog that is very active, it needs more fat. It's like our what what's carb carbs for for the human body is, is fat for the for the canine body, really. So I, I supplement a lot with oils. Sometimes um, they get vitamin C powder, especially after whelping. Uh, this really helps to helps the, the bones and the ligaments to tighten up again in a female dog. Um, yeah, and other than that, I think my, the kibble brand that I'm using right now really covers pretty much everything I used to uh, used to use, like, like green lip muscle powder and stuff like that, that many people use for the joints and for the, for the cartilage inside of the joints. Yeah, I used to do a lot more supplementing. Ever since I, I, I had that, that brand, I'm not doing that much anymore. Except for different oils, or sometimes even um, like just beef fat, like really little little cubes of beef fat that I just
0: throw into the into the, into the food. They, mm-hmm. they a lot mm-hmm. the welping cross? Are they free whelpers, or how? Yeah. How is?
1: The, yeah. Yeah. Um, they. They are. I, I, I think my the the one female that I have, she was a C-section, but it was from a different breeder. Mm-hmm. But I think but the female had like 11 pups or something like that, wow. so that's kind of understandable. Um, but like the last, the last litter that we had, uh, I thought the dog needed a C-section, especially because her mother needed one as well, and I already had the dog inside of the car, and I started driving to the vet. I called her up on a Sunday, of course, on a Sunday, and um, by the time I was at the vet's uh, office, she had two, two, uh, two puppies already oh, So wow. inside of the car. Uh, I drove back again, and the rest went really flawless. I can't really think of a of another dog that needed a C section apart from that one in the in the last, I'd say, six years. Wow! Maybe. Yeah,
0: I don't think they were all natural ruffles. as far as I as far as I know. And what have you seen that the average uh, litter size has been through? Um, it is is getting kind of lar- rather large at the at the moment. I think. Like, just
1: this year, there was another litter um, with 11 puppies, also natural birth. Yeah, it was huge. Um, My dog had seven, and I guess it's about six to eight, roughly. We have one dog that simply just doesn't like to get puppies. She had one, and, like, the others died off in the womb and stuff like that. She just didn't didn't like to have puppies, I guess. Or maybe it was the wrong male. I don't know what that, that was all about. But other than that, I would say between six and eight this would probably be the average and we frequently have more than ten
0: Wow yeah that's big litters that's cool that's cool yeah. <clears throat> so I guess I'll, I'll wrap it up right now and um, is there any messages or anything you'd like to convey that I didn't ask or anything and um, um, go.
1: well I guess I guess lots of viewers will be interested in getting a new dog. I think this is where when the most research is being done and this is when the most viewers will find this interview, I guess. So I think another like the last message would be whenever you're looking for a dog, fact check. As much as you can. If you like dog breeders are a bit like I feel like they're like restaurant owners, you know? They like if you fly into into America, you will see like three restaurants that say we have the best burger in town and that's just at the airport, you know? And you got to check for yourself. You got to get in there, buy the burger, and then you got to ask the guy, where did you get your meat from? And if he starts getting offended, like, hey, what do you mean? What are you talking about where I'm getting my meat from? Then you know that something's wrong with the meat, you know? So if, you, if you're if you interested in a dog and you know what your dog's supposed to do, if it's if it maybe is supposed to do a job, be sure that the parents of that dog are already doing this job. If you want a healthy dog, get health tests from the parents of that dog. And don't just listen to what the breeder says. They'll be like, yeah, my dog's a health test. Is Sure. See the certificates. Take a look at the certificates. And really just fact-check everything you can because there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of stories about People selling dogs that just that were just very disappointing for many people. And if you don't want to be disappointed, yeah, I think nobody's mm-hmm. worth. It's it. pretty mm-hmm.
0: much all I, well, all I can say as as a last message, kind of. Mm-hmm. Well, one more quick question. So, um, do you uh, do you get a lot of interest uh, from places like the states uh, with your dog so far, or uh, are you guys prepared to? ship overseas um
1: yeah we do get a lot of requests well not many people are very much interested in our kind of dog there was a time when they were very very popular i guess that was like 10 years ago or something like that and the high drive high energy working dog um isn't as appealing to many i think they want a pet dog and they don't really want a dog of this of, with this energy, kind of. The people that do want a dog with that energy mostly look in different breeds, but um, we have our little tiny community of people that like what we have and that, that buy them, and um, sometimes we have people from the U.S. asking for, for puppies, but so far they've never followed through. Just like with my last litter, I've had two guys from the U.S., that told me that they wanted a dog, and I've spent hours and hours writing emails with them. And in the end, they didn't follow through. I actually told one of the guys, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the puppy on the plane. I'm gonna fly over to you, and we can do the deal like that. You don't have to worry about anything. Um, you just have to pay my flight." And I think the having having a little puppy on your seat for a couple of hours it's like 120 bucks or something like that. It's nothing really. And another flight, it, I guess. With less than $1,000, he would have the dog in his hands, really, as shipping costs. I guess we calculated something like $700 for shipping, which isn't that much compared to the 2500 that an agency would charge you for shipping a dog. So I told him I would do that, but unfortunately, he didn't want the dog anymore. Um, I don't know why, but I'm totally prepared to do it. If I find somebody anywhere in the world that really wants one of my dogs, and that I have a feeling that... Is really going to be good with the dog. I'm going to get the
0: dog to him in one way or another. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I may be personally hitting you up here in the next year or two when we have uh, when we when we get more of a permanent uh, uh, where we're going to yeah. end up. Hopefully somewhere in the in the country in the next year and a half. So yeah. Uh, no, for no. personal reasons, I'll hit you up too. So yeah, uh, okay, I'll, I'll be out there. Yeah. yeah.
1: Think. I think since you're always concerned a bit about housing your dog and having like a small apartment or something like that, um, I always like when people tell me that they can't have a dog because they're only living in, in a small apartment, I always tell them that it doesn't really matter how big the apartment is. It might feel that way, but any dog has the same requirements. And if you have a very active dog, you end up spending a couple of hours outside with them anyway. And If if you have a high drive dog, a very energetic one, you'll never, almost never, exceed two or three hours outside with an individual dog. It is very rare that there's a dog that requires six hours of work. It's almost non-existent, really. So yeah, when I was a student, I lived across a lady um, that had this tiny apartment, and she was living there with two Great Danes. And it was literally like a forty square foot apartment or something like that. It was just tiny. And yeah, she was like, Yeah, my dogs just sleep in my apartment. They don't live here, they live outside. You know? So if you if you go about it with that kind of mindset, then I think you can keep a working dog anywhere. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't matter. I think there are some of the some dogs that are so highly energetic that they might need more than two hours, but rarely more than three
0: like really very rarely yeah and in, in the opposite could happen too if you can get a Belgian malinois that's perfect for 30 minutes you know what i mean exactly yeah it just depends on the dog yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. i yeah
1: i think that that any
0: dog would be fine in the small living space yeah. as, as yeah. Like said they don't live here they just sleep here that's right yeah. that's right well i appreciate you uh, taking the time and You're and talking. as soon as thank All you right. sir have a great birthday. You too. hello oh, <laughs> thank you. You have a great day. I'll have a great birthday too eventually. Okay. <laughs> take, take,
1: take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.